Look, we're going to say this very quietly because Gary's cat might be asleep. So, And now, coming to you live from the grocery room, high above the Creed Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the very quiet Creed Street Podcast. Yes, I do indeed have a cat asleep next to me. And if the cat wakes up, the cat is going to climb the plant behind me, which, of course, you can't see because you're listening to this. But nevertheless, the cat has decided that there are lots of ways of destroying the apartment, making a lot of noise, and she thinks that's really cute. So as long as she's asleep, and as long as we don't get too excited talking about books during this podcast, we'll get through it safely. How have you been, John? I have a funny feeling. I'm fine, Gary. I mean, you know, I'm getting ready to travel, as you know. Uh, Marianne, my wife, gets very nervous when I talk about traveling publicly because she thinks everyone's going to break into our house. But if you're thinking about that, I assure you we've got people coming to stay in the house while we're away, so it won't work. Um, other than that, probably watching too much television, not reading or editing enough, and feeling like I'll never be ready in time to get on the plane when the, that day comes. But before too long, I'm going to be in, in New York, and then I'm going to be in Kansas City, so no, not too bad. Well, and, and I will remind our listeners again that along with, well, our, our, our regular on the podcast, Kids Johnson, uh, you, the two of you are among the two guests of honor. And one of the things, I looked this up because I was uh, talking to, uh, emailing back Chris McKitterick, who has been Kidge's colleague, was Kidge's colleague for years in Kansas. Kidge has been on the podcast more than 10 times, uh, which may not be a That's record, but it's close. I'm sure it's a record. Yeah, we were going to have her on again too. Do we have to reconsider that? No, we, we, we need to have more of kids. You always need to okay, have Okay, fair enough. Extra kids, Johnson. Extra now kids. Now coming to you with it. Anyway, sorry. Who's Enough now about that. Um, but anyway, congratulations once again. Congratulations uh, to Kidge. And I think that it'll be a wonderful con. Everybody will go to Kansas City, have barbecue, and maybe go to the Jazz Museum. And uh, who knows? Uh, but at any rate, uh, I look forward to seeing you there. It'll be the first time you've seen each other since uh, a year Chicago. ago. You're in Chicago. You, you bet. Oh, I know what happened since we last spoke. I won an award. You've won an award. I did. Congratulations to me. Uh, I won the British Fantasy Award. Well, my book, Someone in Time, that I did for Solaris, that had wonderful work by a dozen and a half other people in it. Um, And it was beautifully packaged by the publisher. That won the Best Anthology Award, which surprised me enormously and pleased me. And yeah. And congratulations on that. If I recall, the announcement of that award raised an issue which has come up before. Uh, didn't it list all the contributors to the book uh, in their official? Yeah, well, uh, after there was an award earlier in the year, several months ago, there was an award for Africa Risen. And after that came out, there was a lot of discussion about whether everybody in a book should be fully credited in the, um, in, in the actual award announcements and such and they they should be it's a, it's a fun thing to do uh-huh. so now it's it's becoming more common to list you know sort of it'd be like the winner for best anthology is an anthology edited by an editor with a featuring work by everybody and that's the announcement so yeah well it means more more reading out at, at uh awards time that's fine, as long as I mean it, it's. I mean, maybe maybe one of the reasons there is not a Hugo for best anthology is to avoid the issue of having to make thirty six Hugos for every contributor to the anthology that wins. <laughs> I know that's not the case, but it's a funny idea. 
Well, it's been an, it's been an issue, as you know, with the Hugo Awards uh, for the last several years as to how many people can you actually give physical awards to. But we should not yep. dwell on that because we've been. Uh, I was looking at some of our reviews. We have reviews. There are reviews of us online. And one of the things that is pointed out more than once is that we talk more about awards than we need to. Um, and that, that's well, that is very true. And and what's terrifying is when you think about it, we're about to launch into another awards-related conversation. Well, in a way, we are. Uh, but <laughs> I, I, I guess the, the question about awards is uh, related to the question which which would thought about talking about tonight, which is best science fiction anthologies or best science fiction and fantasy anthology or best horror anthologies, whatever. Um, it's, it's the difficulty of in a given year taking a field that is no longer in any sense unified, uh, no, long, no longer a finite definable community and giving an award to something that is so amorphous or selecting stories from a field that is so amorphous. Um, and I think this is a, a question which uh, our friend Neil Harrison raised in a recent essay, uh, essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, which was actually an essay about the Sturgeon Award. And his point about the Sturgeon Award is that there are now thousands of stories per year in all kinds of venues, um, as opposed to when Theodore Sturgeon himself was writing, for example, where you had three or four magazines and a few hundred stories and a few hundred writers to choose from. You were choosing the best things that community had done that year. Uh, you weren't trying to cast a wide net, although some anthologists did, um, and claim things for science fiction and fantasy. You were, you were, you were giving your peers awards. And the good thing about that was that everybody kind of knew who was getting the award. The problem with that is that it was a narrowly defined inside group of mostly white male writers giving awards to each other. For decades, that went on. Um, and I think most of us agree that when the field expands beyond its narrow focus of the 30s, 40s, and 50s, uh, that's a good thing. More people are writing more interesting things. But does it get to a point where there are so many things in so many venues, many of which are not even labeled as science fiction and fantasy and horror venues, that what is a best of that? What is that thing that you were choosing a best of? Okay. First of all, I think we're conflating a whole bunch of issues we could talk about, one of which is the impact of technology on publishing. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, the so-called... Campbellian golden age, which happened in the 30s, 40s, and the golden age of pulp magazines was a technology-driven change. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the current era, particularly of online publishing, is very much a technology-driven change where we see access to publishing, you know, the barrier to prevent people publishing uh, made you know, you know, very minimal, realistically speaking, so it's easier and easier to publish, so there's more and more stuff published, being published. And you're absolutely right to say that Neil, in his article, The Year's Best is Dead, for, L for the LARB, is right to say that it's impossible to read and impossible to keep up with everything. There is simply too much. Mm -hmm. And I think as far back as, I mean, uh, my first international Year's Best, which I did with Karen Haber in 2003, mm -hmm. we could kind of read Asimov's Analog, FNSF. We could read a bunch of uh, Realms of Fantasy, um, uh, Science Fiction Age, a handful of other magazines and whatever else you'd, you'd largely be covered. Now 
you've got to know that the magazine exists, which in itself is a challenge mm. because they're not grouped in any one place. You've got to keep track of them. And, you know, really the question that Neil is asking in his article, I think, and the question that year's bests ask and the question that awards ask is what is worth reading each year? What is worth remembering each year? And what is worth talking about each year? Mm-hmm. Um, the awards themselves don't particularly in many, in some, in, in a sense matter. It's, it's that thing. And if, if, if the question is, is it possible to read the interesting from my personal, at least slant, substantive works of science fiction and fantasy and horror you know, for one person to do that in a year it's definitely not there's no way to meaningfully read everything if yeah. you want to focus just on short fiction it's impossible and I mean simply just because of the sheer volume of what let's say volume and, and finding stuff I mean if you're reading Correo and Augur and Strange Horizons and Uncanny are you reading Analog and SMOP and FNSF and are you reading whatever else so can you keep up? No. Are these publications in dialogue in a meaningful way? Some of them within their areas sort of are a bit, but as an overall thing of science fiction, they haven't. And I, I don't know that they can. I mean, my own feeling is at the moment, and this may be personal exhaustion and being two years out of having edited a year's best series, mm. I don't know that I'd try. I'm, I'm less convinced in 2023 that there is anything more important to do than just say, this is of interest, you know, and then try and find what you like. Um, Neil in his article connects the disappearance of years bests with the death of Gardner Dozois in 2018. And that, that might be true, but I think it's also at least partially the fact that um, along with, with that came COVID, along came some other things. And it's it just harder. So I don't think I've actually said anything coherent here other than, in response to your question, other than I don't think you can keep up. I don't know whether it's interesting to, and I don't know that we agree what's, what's, what's you know of interest. And I don't know how you keep track when there's interesting and substantial work being done outside of what maybe, let's say, you and I would look mm. as being the traditional field. You know, I, think I was saying are, to you just before we talk, like that, I was saying to you just before we yeah, started, and, and there's at least three of, major novels that are published outside the field, which are major works of science fiction this year, at least three. At least three. And, and that's probably been the case off and on, at least for decades now. Uh, so I guess part of the question is, uh, has this, is this no longer a celebration of a finite community? Um, if you have somebody who's marginally related to science fiction, and one of the novels that you're uh, mentioning, I'm sure, is, is uh, Francis Fufford's Cahokia Jazz, somebody who's written yep. alternate history before, but who's not part of the community, as far as I know, even in the UK. And so one reaction to that is to define narrower communities. And so you have kind of, I almost think of them as micro years best, the years best uh, hard science fiction, the years best alternative history. Uh, you know, the, the year's best, I don't know. There, there, there was once in, in horror, there was a year's best splatter punk, I think, but, a few years ago. But I, th- I think those are fruitless projects anyway, most well, of they're, them. They're, they're, they're not fruitless. They're, they're, they're saying, this is my community, and it's a very narrow community that I'm talking about. In other words, it's trying to get things down to a manageable level um, and, and, and to, to 
you're only talking about a, a, a slice of the field. But I think that in the case of some of these anthologies and some readers, carving out a small slice of the field makes you feel comfortable. And if you wanted, if somebody wanted to do a year's best anthology based on things that might have appeared in analog in the 1970s, you could probably do an anthology like that too, but it would not be representing the field. It would be representing an infinitesimally small slice of the field. I guess all I mean by fruitless is this. If you're say, if you're looking at something like, uh, you know, the, they did the year's best queer, queer stories, right? Mm-hmm. I can see how that works. I can see how the year's best African speculative fiction uh, works. But when it, when you come to something like the year's best, uh, Hard SF, the year's best space opera. Mm-hmm. No one agrees what those things are, Gary. And you pick up, I've picked up a copy of, or looked at a copy of, you know, the year's best hard SF, and you're going, I don't think that's hard SF. And right. actually, this actually segues into another area. We won't segue fast, but one of the things these books have always done is uh, it's, they're part of an active definition, if you like. This is, this is science fiction. This is fantasy. This is hard science fiction. And we don't exist. We don't agree. And I mean, admittedly, these are only interesting questions within a really narrow part of the reading world. For most people, they don't care at all and have no reason to care because they're not important for uh, to, to most to you know, your, your your typical reader. It's only someone who's engaged with the evolution of science fiction as an idea that cares, right? I think that's true, and I, uh, you're right. Looking at this from a kind of literary historical point of view gives you a different perspective on it. For example, you mentioned. Uh, that there are uh, there are journals now, literary journals, traditional sense, McSweeney's conjunctions that include science fiction or include mm-hmm. things that are related to science fiction, uh, and 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 don't make that distinction. And if you look at that development compared to one of the early criticisms issued against Judith Merrill, whose years best went on for years was the second major years, best anthologies. And Merrill was criticized in the field in the 50s and 60s for dragging in things that were not science fiction and fantasy in any traditional sense. You know, mm-hmm. the, her, her anthologies included uh, Shirley Jackson and Eugenie Inesco and, and, and Steve Allen, who was a TV comedian at the time. She was just trying to expand the field. She was trying to make an argument that science fiction is out there everywhere. It's not just our little community. And people saw her as betraying the, the boundaries of the field in some ways. Um, now, that that seems almost conservative. Now, the idea of confining your view of science fiction to only the self-identified genre magazines seems unusually narrow-minded. Um, Let me ask you this, because I think it's relevant to our listeners. If you set aside your own experience as a book reviewer who has handed things to review mm-hmm. how do you find books or or short fiction to review or sorry to read in 2023 that's going to interest you i don't know it's been it, it, it sounds it sounds privileged and i suppose it is because i've been reviewing so long and because my barnes noble down on the corner closed five years ago um i the idea of going into a bookstore and Maybe going to the science fiction section, maybe not, and find and just picking out something I wanted to read. I haven't had that experience in a long time. Uh, I don't know what it would be like. I do remember 
uh, even before I stopped going to bookstores to look for things, that I realized that there were some things I wanted that would be in the science fiction section and some things that were clearly science fiction that would be up in the general literary, literature section. Some might even show up in uh, the, the mystery section. In other words, some of the books that interested me most, and they've always been interested in cross-genre books, are not easily findable uh, unless you have a knowledgeable bookstore clerk, of which there are many and who deserve all the respect in the world. There was a James Lee Burke uh, murder mystery, for example, a very good mystery writer set in Louisiana uh, that had ghosts in it, had, had Confederate ghosts in it. It was, it, was, it was a pretty good supernatural story. And would I have found that on my own? No, Charlie Brown found it for me and sent it to me and said, you should review this mystery writer because he's written a, what amounts to a horror novel. Um, and so the idea of how do you find what to read anymore is something I can't identify with. I wish I could. Well, I, I will give you a sense. There are books that I would, if I went into the bookstore tomorrow and saw a copy of Kelly Link's The Book of Love, I'd be all over it because that's an author. That's a book. Okay, I've already seen it. That's never, nevertheless, there are things I would look for. There are writers I would look for. When I was a kid, I would be very excited about every new Bradbury book that came out. I'd be uh, excited uh, uh, when Zelazny books came out, for example. There, there, there are those things. But that's because you're working within a community. And yet I was always interested in what was going on out in mainstream fiction, which is a term I don't like, so I'm calling it general fiction. And how to find those things? That's what reviews are for, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, I will bet you that for most people it remains. And if you think back to when you were, say, if you think back to sort of when you were in your 20s and 30s or younger, recommendations from friends, that's how you find books. Yeah. Followed by actually going into a bookstore, which possibly you don't do much anymore, but actually going into a bookstore and seeing what's on a new release table or on the shelf or having someone recommend to you, maybe going into a library. Uh, I can tell you that when I was growing up, certainly you didn't see the science fiction magazines hardly at all anywhere. And of course they all came and went in, in, you know, in, in a short period of time on a newsagent shelf rather than anything else. And today, I mean, I'd add in social media. I mean, obviously for a lot of people, uh, TikTok and, you know, Instagram or whatever else, uh, play a big part, but I guess I'm trying to like edge around and clarify for myself is, one, what is this? What is this activity for? This publishing of years bests and re recommended reading lists and everything else. Two, is it important? Three, what does it say about what we're experiencing and reading? And I, I, I guess these awards are somewhat influential in terms of what we're reading. I certainly see people, though it's within a particular sphere, going well. You know, like I guess I better go and read this book because it's up for an award. And I mean, that's certainly why, I mean, it's an unusual year of late for me where I've read all five of the world fantasy award nominated novels this year. Mm -hmm. Right. But that's unusual for me just because of life. Um, well, you read, you read what, them before they were nominated for the awards mostly, didn't you? Only, uh, well, I read four of them before it was nominated for an award. And the fifth I, I read after the, the, it was nominated, mm -hmm. which actually is pretty extraordinary because 
as everybody who listens to the podcast would know, um, we both are caught up in reading stuff that's coming out three months, six months, 12 yeah. months away. I mean, I, I've been, I read not, I know it's out now, but I read the Elizabeth hand novel, uh, a haunting on the hill just recently because we're going to be doing a podcast with, with Liz and with Alex Harrow about her novel, um, Starling house. And I know because you were bragging to me in a most unseemly way, I thought, really quite unseemly, that you're halfway through the Book of Love by Kelly Link, but not actually dropping a name and not actually bragging, but halfway through the Book of Love, right? Well, the, yes, okay, fine. Uh, and, 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 it's, and the fact that I'm halfway through it is evidence of its compelling nature because I ought not to be reading it now. It's a book coming out in February. I ought to be reading this book in December so I can review it for the February issue of Locust. But it's one of those things, and this is what I mean about uh, about impulse reading, I guess, that I have a pile of books. I always have a pile of books that I know I can't get through. And this showed up, and I started, I thought, I'm curious. Nobody knows what a Kelly Link novel is going to be like. So I thought, I'll get a sense of what it's going to be like. And uh, 300 pages later, uh, all the other stuff on the pile is sitting there, and I'm going to finish it in the next day or two. Uh, so, so there is that. But there are very few writers who are as intriguing as that. And even uh, and, and that's Kelly Link is intriguing because Kelly Link. When I first discovered uh, Alex Harrow, for example, I had no idea who she was at all. Um, I got a copy of, I guess, The 10,000 Doors of January, and thought, this is odd. This is interesting. I didn't know where it was going. I found myself absolutely caught up. And it, was, it wasn't anybody's recommendation at all. And it, admittedly, I'm, I'm saying again, this is an unfair privilege from having been a reviewer for a long. Somebody sends me a book, I'll start reading it. Uh, Kate Hartfield's The Embroidered Book, which recently won a Canadian award, we should mention. The book I didn't think I'd be interested in at all, historical fantasy, really compelling. And so I still have the experience of discovering a new book um, that's either satisfying what I hoped for from this writer, which I think is what's happening with Kelly Link and what certainly uh, happened to me with uh, Nicola Griffiths Meanwood, or discovering a writer that I'd never known anything about before. And I remember distinctly the experience of discovering writers that I now follow regularly. I remember my experience of reading the first Lavi Tidar novel, which was not one of the Bookman novels, but I forgot what it was now. Um, I remember distinctly reading my first, well, Nadia Korofor is uh, hardly an ex a, a normal case because I knew her when she was in graduate school, but her first novel was absolutely compelling. Um, Tade Thompson's novels were compelling. Um, the, we talked a few weeks ago with Wally Talabi. Uh, novel that I found utterly fascinating. So, so on the one hand, you're balancing books that you know you want to read with books that you don't know you want to read, and that question of, uh, of balance. And I think one of the things I always saw from the year's best anthologies was I would see short fiction by a writer who would intrigue me over a period of time, and eventually I'd see a novel by that person, or maybe the novel had been out for a few years and I'd come across it and would be absolutely fascinated by it. So, so I think the idea of introducing uh, writers that you might want to follow is an important function of an anthology. 
But it may not be an important function of a year's best anthology because a year's best anthology may be highlighting just some stories by writers that you will never see again. In 2023, and I've had different experiences in the past, and I'm now, of course, at the moment, not a a participant in this. So in 2023, which year's bests would you turn to? I I have three touchstone year's best series in my life as a reader, right? Mm -hmm. Terry Carr's bests of the year, then Dozois' best of the year, and the original Detlow Windling bests of the year were all very, very important. And for my money as a reader, me, there's nothing like that out out there at the moment. Are there any year's bests that you touch base with? To be honest, I don't think so. Um, I mean, again, I say that because I don't see all of them. Uh, I see some of the, uh, uh, the, the best American science fiction and fantasy, which is uh, this year edited by R.F. Wang together with uh, uh, John Joseph Adams, who makes an initial cut, and then the nominal editor takes a cut of that cut. The issue with that, of course, is that um, even though you've got J.J. Adams behind it, you have a different set of tastes every year. Every guest editor makes different choices. Some years best tend to emphasize horror more. Uh, some are more science fiction oriented. Some are more oriented toward metafiction. The, the, the Quang anthology likes experimental narrative forms, for example, likes stories that are not necessarily linearly plotted stories, uh, which, is, which is fine, but I, at the same time, had the editor of the previous year's bests, going back to Carmen Maria Machado and some of the other guest editors, this year's year's best would have looked different. So I don't get the sense I got from, from your anthologies or Gardner's anthologies or Terry Carr's anthologies or the Datlow and the anthologies uh, of year to year knowing what the taste of an editor is. And I think knowing what the taste of an editor is has always been kind of important to me, just like knowing what the taste of a reviewer is. You know, if you, if, if you know that this reviewer uh, agrees with you 50% of the time, you go into the review that way. If you go into an anthology um, knowing what the kind of biases of the anthologist are, uh, you, you regulate for that. Gardner always included some stories that just didn't interest me much at all. Um, and sure. there were same time stories that I thought, I'm really glad I read this anthology because these three or four stories make it worthwhile. And I think that's, in some ways, the best you can expect from an anthology. And you as an editor, I know, probably, if you're mentally normal, as I suspect you are, would like to have every reader love every story in every anthology you edit. But you know that's not going to happen. I don't know. I'd say mentally normal. (laughs) <laughs> First of all, because only partly for all sorts of reasons, but including that anyone who undertakes to read enough to compile a year's best may well not be what anybody would consider as neurotypical. But um, no, I don't expect everybody to like everything in a book I edit. I don't aspire to have anybody uh, like everything in a, in a book I edit. Uh, and I doubt that any anthologist honestly does. And if they do, I wonder if they're thinking clearly you're looking to put together a book that's interesting enough and intriguing enough to read and to keep you reading. Yeah. Uh, you want to appeal to a broad number of people, which means that you're going to not appeal to somebody at any given moment. It's making it interesting, engaging, and in a sense, 
explicable do you understand what's going on and why mm. you know uh in a year's best you i mean year's best right now, right now i think are very difficult to do anyway for all sorts of reasons but you know, you're casting around trying to find some version of what you as a hopefully informed reader consider the best whatever that may mean and it's very personal then you're looking for how do i then you know like filter that group into um in, into uh, a book that will will make sense to readers. I look back, I and mean, I remember saying, I, I remember I, uh, back when uh, Gardner was still alive. I remember having a conversation with, uh, email conversation with Gardner mm. and with Rich Horton and with Neil Clark and a couple other people, and I made the statement that if you get us all, if you've got everybody who read everything in a room together, we would all pick the same top three hundred stories, all of us. Mm. Almost with, with almost hundred percent overlap, and, and but that none of us would pick the same same top thirty. Interesting point. And that was, they pretty much all agreed with that. We, because like I could look at a, one of Gardner's books and go, mm. I would not pick that story, but I know why you did. I can see. I understand why. And that's what that kind of being informed thing. And in some ways. These days, maybe publishing that theoretical list of 300, which to some degree, the Locust recommended reading list is a variation on. Yeah, it's a variation. Uh, That's more useful. And then the recommended reading lists at the back of year's best anthologies seem to be a way of making up for that. But but here's a question, Mike. When you're choosing the 30 stories out of the 300, uh, how much of that is purely a consideration of craft? How much of it is making an argument? In, In other words... Gardner's argument about science fiction, it seemed to me, over the many years he did this, shifted. I think he began as a kind of defender of traditional science fiction. He began as somebody carrying, uh, not, not, not the torch of, of John W. Campbell, but, but of the science fiction he grew up with in the 80s, and he wanted to celebrate that. And as he went through it, he was looking at more diverse writers, at more experimental kinds of fiction, at more literary kind of fiction. And I think there's always an element, in my mind, of an editor's uh, making an argument when putting together an anthology. I'll give you a specific example. For a few years um, back, about the same time you were getting started with Year's Best, David Hartwell and Catherine Kramer did a Year's Best Science Fiction and a Year's Best Fantasy as two separate volumes with the explicit intention of drawing a line between science fiction and fantasy. And And David actually said this in more than one of his introductions to his anthologies, that these anthologies are intended to define, this is the line. You you don't cross this line if you're writing a science fiction story. But if you do cross this line, I've got another fantasy book over here. I'll put you in. That's fine. Um, I don't think it was quite... Well, okay. Okay, I'm very, very, very cautious about the idea of explaining the views of someone who's no longer here to explicate them themselves. That's true. Although I will, in my defense, say that I can go point to the introductions that David wrote to those anthologies. Sure. Explicitly say that. Um, I mean, I don't question in in David's example or David Catherine's example, really, uh, his love for both science fiction and fantasy and horror as well. I don't Mm. question it at all. I do feel that he particularly of the two anthologists you're talking about was most committed to a traditional core view of science fiction. I think Gardner came from one, mm-hmm. but I think when he picked up his reviewing cudgel and was working with Jim Frankel at Blue Jay back in 1984 to kick off the mm-hmm. year's best science fiction, 
I don't think that was the cudgel he picked up. I mean, I think the cudgel that Gardner picked up was trying to define the entire scope of the enterprise, and that's what changed the books over time. Not his varying interest, but the nature of the enterprise of science fiction and fantasy. And so he was going, I think it's in the first introduction to the first year's best that he did in the series, where he says something in the lines lines that he wanted to be able to drop this book down in the middle of nowhere with no further explanation, and you would be able to understand what science fiction was doing at that Mm. time. And that's why if you pick up that first book, which I remember enjoying very much, it's a it's an interesting book because it's 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 fiction at the cusp of change. Yeah, we have the remaining golden age writers who are still uh, productive at that time. I mean, Frederick Pohl's in there, all kinds of people are in there, along with some of the new wave and some newer writers, and the beginning of the look of, of cyberpunk. Hmm. And, and then by the time you get to the 15th volume or so, that kind of focus has changed quite a lot. And by the time you get to the end of it, uh, he was, you know, he he changed. I will say, I mean, he still retained an idea of some sense of core science fiction. And I felt, and I know in conversation, we touched on the fact that there was a sense of struggling to find core science fiction as time went on, that it had become harder to, lo- to locate yeah. and the center of the field wasn't there. And we've touched on that. that, that it, I think that's true. Um, though I wonder whether, you know, some of what you have to allow is that our understanding of what that is has changed. You know, so much of what is discussed as being the history of science fiction is actually, you know, the history of commercial science fiction in the United States of America between 1930 mm-hmm. and 1960 uh, which was then sent out to the rest of the world, but was not at any point the entirety of science fiction and was only those people who had access to the means of being published and the resources to take time to write, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, so it's, you know, it's a little bit like when we talk about, you know, the uh, World Series, Series Baseball. You know, the, the golden age of science fiction is quite a lot like the World Series Baseball. Yeah. You know, there's, there's only one group of people playing. Uh-huh, Right. And for that matter, for the first half century of the World Series of Baseball, it was only American teams from east of the Mississippi River. So it's, it's even narrower. Uh, but, but yeah, yeah I, I think that that's kind of what I mean. One of the things that you could easily make an argument for going back to, to, to Gardner's anthologies and earlier to the Terry Carr anthologies, there was, um, well, to be honest, I guess, there was a lot of deliberate dreck in the field. In other words, uh, the, the magazines needed to fill up pages, monthly magazines. So you would have a couple of classic stories. You would have, um, you know, you, you'd have a Heinlein story or, or a Van Vogt story. And then you'd have a bunch of stories that need, were needed to fill out the magazine, but nobody expected to go beyond that. So out of that group of a few hundred stories, it was easy to pick out those that were most literate. That that world is long gone, as you as you say. It's that's that's the World Series of 1947. Um, so it's. I've got a segue question for you. Partial segue question. And sorry to interrupt you, but it's this. Okay, so there you are. You're reading science fiction and fantasy. I, I you know I was doing a diff- different time, but similar kind of thing. You're reading a year's best. When you were starting to read science fiction, why did you read a year's best? I wanted to find out what to read. Um, 
I, I, I had a sense again that there are these books in the bookstore. I knew some names, but I didn't know others. And uh, the year's best was a way of finding authors that I found simpatico, and then going and look, looking for books by those authors. So it's a sales sampler. This this stuff, and, and it was for me too. Seriously, because I, I'd mostly read novels. I'd read collections, some anthologies, and I'd enjoy them. That'd be fine. But like, I mean, as I've said on the podcast a bunch of times, uh, there are a few that stand out. Like I remember in 1984 reading Light Years and Dark, the Michael Bishop anthology. Mm-hmm. And when I read it, what I remember is, oh, there are all these people in this book that I've never read before. And now I have to go and read Howard Waldrop and George Alec Effinger yeah. and so-and-so and so-and-so forth. Gardner Dozois, who I knew about but hadn't read at that time, really, in my life. And I think that one of the mistakes we make when we, you and I and other commentators looking at years best make, is that, that that's not the real thing that happened. This canonization, I mean, I, I, canonization of science fiction, or, or, or it is part of canonforming, is almost a secondary function, I think, rather than its primary. It feels like it's primary function to us, but it's not the primary function of people who get the books. This segues into another one, but we'll but okay. respond next first, seg- and then I'll tell you what the next segue is. Well, I was going to say that one of the things that the anthologies made me curious about were the magazines, because I had not... The magazines were available when I was a kid, but I never thought about... But the anthologies would give me names. I would look up the names, and then I discovered... Uh, in Kansas City, as a matter of fact, where the World Fantasy is a bookstore, a mysterious bookstore that uh, I went to on 12th Street when I was 10, 12 years old. Curiously enough, decades later, only a few years ago, I was talking to Jim Gunn, who grew up um, also in, in, in Kansas, and who also went to this same bookstore to buy pulp magazines back in the 30s. Jim was there in the 30s. I was there in the late 50s and early 60s. And so I realized, having seen these names in anthologies, I wanted to see what the magazines had. I wanted to see who else was there. So I bought a bunch of pulp magazines. You could buy pulp magazines for a quarter apiece back then. I mean, amazing stories, magazines from the 1940s, astounding from the 40s and early 50s. And what I discovered is that what was in the year's best really were the best stories. Those magazines were full of stories that I thought, why should I finish this? And I later realized that, okay, filling out an issue was something the editor had to do every month. So the year's best was a kind of, it was not just a canon formation kind of thing. I don't think it really was that because there were writers that I, one of the a couple of writers I fell in love with early in my reading were Mildred Klingerman and Zena Henderson, who probably ought to be canonized and are be on the way to being canonized a little bit now. Um, and their stories, I'd have to go look at them in magazines. I'd find uh, Idris Seabright stories, which was a, one of the pseudonyms for, ah, uh, forgot who it is. Somebody will tell us. But anyway, um, for example, I discovered there are a lot of women writers that frequently didn't show up in the year's best, but showed up in the magazines. But mostly what I learned from the magazines is that editors of magazines choose a couple of good stories, really strong stories per issue. And the editors of year's best choose among the best of those stories, which means that editors actually are saving me from reading a lot of stuff, which had I read it, might have made me give up on science fiction because a lot of that stuff was just awful. Fair enough. I mean, I will say that probably as the reader I am in 2023, 
you know, as broken down a reader as I am, that I am increasingly, well, I'm now much more uncomfortable with the idea of the best in both of those levels that you're talking about. Um, But they certainly pick what they pick. Uh, And I know it's, I mean, I I know it's not always the best. And that much might sound like an odd thing to say. I think they, they, I mean, I know there are stories that magazines, there are stories that I have passed over that won major awards. Mm -hmm. Weren't they the best? I didn't pick them because either I didn't like them, that I didn't respond to them. I didn't pick them because they didn't fit the the publication that I uh, was working for at the time. I mean, as you and the listeners know, I acquire short fiction for Tor.com. Mm-hmm. And there is no specific mission for Tor.com in its short fiction that I'm aware of. They've never put, put one to me. I could literally acquire pretty much anything I want. And they, no one stands in my way. I could, you know, I could be sent a story tomorrow and I could accept it. And they would, barring something extraordinary, which in all the years I've been working with them, I have to say, has never come up. Mm-hmm. Barring something extraordinary, they will publish it. But there's stuff that I read and I think that's not a Tor.com story. I'm not 100% sure how to articulate it to you. Mm-hmm. And I have been contraindicated, I have to tell you. Uh, there were at least one or two experiences even where um, I've been sent to work for Tor.com. I've said no. And because I am a, a consulting editor, you can send a work to another Tor consulting editor mm-hmm. and they can consider it. And they've bought the work for Tor.com because they have a different view of what they think Tor.com is. I think that's a very healthy model, as a matter of fact. Though, though, though we never come together and sit down and go, what is it? Now that I think about it, in all my time with Tor.com, I've never sat down with anybody other than maybe one conversation at the very beginning of it all, which actually had no relationship to what I ended up buying, um, about what it should be. Well, I want to add something to that. Well, I, I now because keep in mind you had another segue we need to get to shortly. But I do, I do but it's related, so it's okay. Okay, well, this is related also because uh, I – I, I think it's nice that Tor.com acknowledges who edits uh, these things. And most uh, most writers, when they put together collections of stories, acknowledge the editors that, that bought the stories initially. But you could have a sense this is not a Tor.com story and somebody else disagrees with you and it gets published anyway. I find that a healthier and more diverse model than the classic model of the uh, of the uh, editorial process. Let's say at the New Yorker because almost every – a lot of writers I know have submitted to the New Yorker, and some of them have succeeded. The New Yorker has published some science fiction, has published some Le Guin, had published one Gene Wolfe story, I think, and it's published people like Jonathan Lethal and so forth. But the re- what I've heard from more than one writer is they get a note back saying, this is a very good story, but it's just not a New Yorker story. And that was, for 50 years, that was kind of one person's attitude attitude one and, and and nobody ever knew what a new yorker story was for a while it meant jd salinger story before that it meant a john o'hara story before that you know but and when the new yorker published a story that wasn't a new yorker story they'd come up with sometimes like a masterpiece like the lottery but the thing is that works against diversity but it works toward a specific idea of quality which is one of the things i wanted to get out also because if we get away from these Focused anthologies, uh, year's best cyberpunk, you know, year's best hard SF, and that sort of thing. 
and go beyond genre, then you've got a series which has been going on for a century now, practically, the best American short stories, uh, which outside of being American, which is kind of limiting today, as a matter of fact, I think one of the issue, one, one, one of the questionable issues about the best American science fiction and fantasy annuals is the term American, because American seems provincial by today's standards of the field. Um, but apart from that, apart from that rubric American, you're just talking about what you think is the best crafted story. You're not looking at genre. You're not looking at anything other than pure literary craft. And I think, uh, even though that's extremely subjective on the basis of the editor, I think that kind of resembles more the way the science fiction, fantasy, and horror field works today. You just look at the best written stories and not worry about what they do to or for or with the genre materials. Maybe, except no one agrees what best written means. Well, that's it, that's exactly what it amounts to, which goes back to my point of do you learn to trust the editor or not? I hope so. I mean, you've just read, and this is still not segueing, you just read uh, the best American uh, science fiction and fantasy as selected by um, Rebecca Quang and edited by uh, John Joseph Adams. Mm-hmm. Did you find any new to you favorite writers or favorite stories in there? I'd have to look at the table of contents, but um, I mean, I have to say, one of my f- favorite stories of the year. I've, I don't have the book. I you know, I don't see uh, these things. I don't get over here, but. Uh, one of my favorite stories, completely for obvious reasons, The Difference Between Love and Time by Catherine Valenti, which I edited and acquired for Someone in Time, my anthology. Mm-hmm. I love that story very much. So, you know, and I also actually really like Alex Harrow's story, The Six De- the, the Deaths yeah. of the Saint. But the, 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 I have not finished the book yet, so I can't really say definitively if I discovered completely new writers because the ones that I... Uh, some stories that I tend to like are by writers that I have admired for a long time. You, 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 Sophia Samatar's story is in there. Uh, there's a Stephen Graham Jones story. There's uh, uh, a Theodora Goss story. There are, and, and, and the Cat Valenti story is in there as well. Uh, I'd have to just kind of get back to you about some of the others. There's one that's very amusing, okay. uh, but I can't really. Uh, there's a okay. Isabel Kim is a writer I don't know about, and she's doing a kind of metafictional riff on cyberpunk, which is interesting because that's both clearly alluding to the history of science fiction, including uh, alluding to the imagery of cyberpunk, not just in the fiction, but there's a lot of Blade Runner imagery and that sort of thing. So I'm fascinated by somebody who's interested in some core aspect of the field, but interested in playing with the metafictional aspects of that. Uh, at, at the same time. So you can be experimental and traditional at the same time. And I find that interesting. And I don't think that a story like that would ever make something like the year's best American short stories, because it is connected to the field in a way that it expects the reader to understand. Uh, in other words, it's not pure craft. It's pure craft that involves a dialogue with science fiction. And that kind of thing is what I do find interesting. Uh, I, I, I think that stories that uh, relate in some way uh, to, in, in some knowledgeable way to a tradition, sort of connect 
the story to a to some kind of tradition of science fiction. Although the other point I was going to make about anthologies, um, and there's a kind of an anthology, kind of a I think an editorial uh, point being made by I assume uh, Rebecca Quang in this, that there are a lot of forms of stories, non traditional narratives, not traditional plotted stories, but stories in the forms of lists or recipes or whatever um, that are worth looking at in science fiction. And that's an argument which I've seen um, in a number of anthologies, anthologies that want to celebrate more experimental kinds of science fiction. And this is a thing that goes on in science fiction going all the way back to new wave, to, to new worlds, to dangerous visions and that sort of thing, which is the other point I was going to make is that anthologies inevitably are making an argument. They can make an explicit argument or they can make an implicit argument. We mentioned the Hartwell and Kramer anthologies in which he wanted, they wanted to clearly draw a line between science fiction and fantasy and celebrate the traditions of each separately. There are anthologies like the Vandermeer's histories of science fiction and fantasy. Vandermeer's history of science fiction clearly wanted to make an argument that science fiction did not exclusively grow up in the Anglo-American community of the pulp magazines. There's a giant book of cyberpunk uh, by Jared... Uh, uh, Jared Shuren. Shuren, yeah. Jared Shuren. Which is clearly making an argument, as far as I can tell, I've only seen the contents, I don't have the book, but it's making an argument that, it seems to me, that cyberpunk is a lot more widespread than we thought it was, that cyberpunk is kind of a infusion of culture and not a sort of five-year-long movement in science fiction of the 1980s. Um, whether or not you agree with the argument, it seems to me that that is an argument being made by that book. Can I say, Gary Wolf, you just pre-segued my segue. Oh, good. Because I was going to touch on the big book of cyberpunk, uh, which is out in the world now, and which Paul Kincaid, who suffered for my art, um, assures me is a fine book that is worth reading, at least as a if you don't look at it as a big book of cyberpunk and do look at it as a very long collection of short fiction, mm -hmm. which is interesting. I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I... The big book of cyberpunk is organized into five 200-page anthologies and then given to you as one 1,000-page anthology, right? Brief. I don't believe it is a book that is designed to be read by humans, is my own feeling. <laughs> uh, I don't believe that when you give someone, well, actually, it's actually an 1,100-page book with 105 or something stories uh, put into a book that's in tiny type that's split column. This is a book that feels to me like it's designed to be put on a shelf and and owned, mm -hmm. which is which is fine. You know, it's 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 an interesting thing because, unlike in some ways, the year's best. I mean, the year's bests are a first corralling of stuff, right? They're yeah. like, this is what happened in this year, and that's that's really their argument. I mean, set aside sort of pejorative, well, uh, emotional terms, emotive terms like best, and even some some degree science fiction, but best when. Um, John Joseph Adams and his co-editor, when Neil Clark, when Rich Horton, when Paula Garan, when these people, and what I used to, when Alan Datlow does, sit down to do this, it's like, let's corral the arbitrary thing of 2022 into a mm -hmm. year and say, this is kind of what happened, and this is the best and most interesting, and I've put it this way to give you an idea of what happened. The big book of cyberpunk, which first of all, contextually, unless you come across it coincidentally, sits with 
the time travelers almanac and the, the, uh, the weird and the big book of science fiction and the big yeah. book of modern fantasy. So it's a, it's an attempt to crush your argument to death with <laughs> so much stuff that you have to accept it. And yes, it is a book that says, even though, uh, Bruce Sterling struggled to fill the 200 odd pages of mirror shades. There is nonetheless 110, uh, you know, interesting and memorable, uh, spy, cyber, cyberpunk stories. And actually, and even then it cheats horribly because it goes, well, actually just to, you know, in each of the books, I'll put like a story from like, well before the origins of cyberpunk to show you what it was. So we'll get James Tiptree Jr. in there and whatever else. And it includes stories that by almost no reasonable measure I can see could be cyberpunk. So it's interesting, like, what... I I mean, I think it's the kind of book, by the way, go buy it, take it home, find a way if you can to take time to read it. Uh, I I mean, just, just looking down the list... Whilst I could argue with any selection, there are the stories that I have read I know to be terrific. So it's not like it's this is an entertaining book, it'll be worth dipping into. But does can the argument it makes be successful? You know, uh, can do you get a feel for cyberpunk and is you know, and can you define it? And I say this as someone who was contracted and paid to do a book just like this, almost like this, and didn't. Mm-hmm. And I also think of anthologies like uh, uh, Kessel and Kelly's, I forget the title, a, a post-cyberpunk anthology, where they were looking mm-hmm. at reactions to cyberpunk. And I think the difference between that and the big book of cyberpunk is that Kessel and Kelly both lived through the cyberpunk era. They knew the cyberpunk writers. And for them, it was a moment in science fiction history in the 1980s. Um, it, it, cyberpunk had a very specific internal meaning to science fiction readers and writers during that period. But the word cyberpunk, as I pointed out somewhere in some essay I wrote, the word cyberpunk escaped science fiction fairly early on. Uh, there was a cyberpunk cover story in Time magazine in may have been as late as 1990 or 1992. Um, and it's talking about the new digital revolution. It was one of uh, Time's attempts to you know, catch up with the world. And fiction is not mentioned in it at all. I mean, Sterling, Gibson, none of, none of the people who invented and coined the term cyberpunk um, are even mentioned in it. So cyberpunk, by the time of that Time magazine, had been the whole kind of Silicon Valley attitude, the, the, the whole kind of uh, gonzo, cowboy, startup, tech company, bro, tech bro thing that had very little to do, very little connection at all with the fiction of the time. So I think that one of the conflicts that's going on now is the literary historical view of cyberpunk as a very narrow and very defined uh, period in science fiction, and the idea of cyberpunk as just kind of a really cool term that covers all sorts of things that in any way imaginable can be related to the issues that were raised in cyberpunk fiction. In other words, if you were to take the, the you would take the idea of cyberpunk and say cyberpunk is anything that has anything to do with anything that happened in Neuromancer, you can expand it exponentially to whatever you want to include. You can, you can. Let me ask you this then. Uh, yeah. 
Gary Wolf, as a, a noted scholar in the field, who has reviewed many, 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 many books. What's cyberpunk? I tend to come at cyber, but, but my argument, first of all, is both. Both are equally valid. My view of cyberpunk was always uh, essentially Bruce Sterling's view. I mean, it's, he, he, who was it? I forgot who. I forgot who coined the term. Um, it, oh, it was uh, was it Bruce Bethke? Bethke, yes, Bruce Bethke. So, so, so there was a very specific, and then there was steampunk that came along. So there was a very specific kind of gesture being made by a number of writers, Gibson and Sterling and Varley and uh, and, and uh, uh, Lewis Shiner and a f- and a few others. Um, that was a movement. It was a self conscious movement. It was an effort effort to infuse a kind of attitude into science fiction. But all the elements of cyberpunk, as I think Sterling and, and Gibson later discussed, had been there before. The idea of introducing attitude into science fiction was there mm-hmm. with Ellison, certainly. It was there with Spinrad. It was there with people who were... So you could see pre-cyberpunk writers. You could see the cyberpunk moment. And you could see the post-cyberpunk writers, uh, yes. including the people who for a few years were briefly called the humanists responding to this. So there was this whole discussion going on. That's a very narrow and kind of academic discussion that has very little to do with somebody reading a cyberpunk story today. You're not going to read, let's say, Pat Cadigan's uh, Pretty Boy crossover uh, in the context of what was happening in the 80s. You're going to read it because it's a cool story. Does it work? Yes, it still does. The broader meaning of cyberpunk, which annoys me, I guess, as a literary scholar, is that it's anything you want it to be. And <laughs> Well, but I mean, this then touches in, and we, we need to begin to, to segue yeah. away altogether because we're getting to the end of our time, and we don't want to start doing two-hour podcasts, no matter what anybody says. Um, this then gets back to the fact is that, that there, there's no clade of definitions that everybody exists, uh, agrees on. The de- definitions just are personal, and they're just a thing, right? They're not sort of yeah, set in stone. No, not at all. I mean, uh, this is why I go back to the point about editors being making argument, making arguments, and, and and David Hartwell, and I keep coming back to him, but he was very open about this. He would do a mm-hmm. hard science fiction anthology and deliberately include stories by Le Guin and Butler and people that we would not normally think of as hard science fiction, but if you look at them through a particular lens, you can see his argument. So he was sure. he was kind of giving you a college course and the idea of hard science fiction cyberpunk is an idea which is no more specific uh and no more definable than hard science fiction than space opera than science fantasy all kinds of labels which we conveniently use to describe books we like and all those labels are nothing more in the end from a reader's point of view than a way of thinking, well, maybe if I use this label, I can find more books that fit this label and I'll like those books and I know what else to read next. Fair enough. That's almost enough for us to wind up on. Almost. It seems to me like we haven't concluded anything at all. Well, I mean, what is there to conclude but this? If you are, uh, you, you cannot hope to keep up with all of the science fiction, well, book length and short fiction published in the field every year. No, We've said that a hundred times before maybe a thousand times uh some of the years well the year's best can be a nice way of finding interesting short fiction 
if you can find the year's best themselves these days. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there is any coming from a, a major publisher now, except for the best American, which maybe, maybe you know, is interesting. Uh, and that a- anthologies that make arguments are interesting, but they don't necessarily, you know, you don't necessarily agree with them and they don't necessarily achieve that. You know, I feel like, as, as I say, one way or another, people have been casting around for a definitive cyberpunk anthology for a chunk of time, and I'm not sure that one has ever been done. I'm not sure one ever will be done because there's not a definitive cyberpunk. Um, there's, yeah. and, and nor, nor should there be. I mean, cyberpunk, as, as I go back to the new wave, there's never been a definitive new wave anthology. There was an attempt of it, again, Judith Merrill very early on in 1968, in what is still the worst anthology title ever, uh, did a book called Amer- England Swings SF. And it, you know, it, it, it had people like Pamela Zolina in it, for example, and then Bob Ballard and so forth. Very good anthology. Uh, does it define everything the new wave did? Of course not. Uh, but what it does is give you a window into a very specific period in the history of mostly British science fiction with some American writers involved during a period in the in, in the 60s when things were changing rapidly. I think cyberpunk does the same thing. But again, you can use the new wave to mean anything you want. There's, there are new waves in science fiction every 10 years or so. Um, yeah. Just that, you know, that term's kind of been worn out. I mean, and, and like I said, we tend to try to find labels for periods. We had cyberpunk, so of course we had to have steampunk. Um, and if you have steampunk, then, then Ken Liu wanted us to have silk punk, which is kind of a neat term, but as far as I can tell, applies to three Ken Liu novels mostly. <laughs> it's true. It's true. We, we, just anyway. like, we, we, we like to label things because it's a way of finding other things. And sometimes the label seems to work. I think steampunk works as a label. I think most people, if they know that they want a steampunk novel and they uh, – Fine. and they, they like the difference engine, they'll know where to find other things that, that, that satisfy that. But that's, that's a fairly narrow definition of it. I think the value of it all, of years bests, of awards, of labels, they're all part of how we talk about this. That's it what they're us, for. It gives us a you know, fiction. You're right. You know, I find pleasure in it, but I mean, yes, it's nice. To be able, and I enjoy being able to talk about the best of the year because it's kind of, these are the most interesting books I read this year, you know, and I think you might like them too, for whatever reason. That's what this podcast does. It burdens our readers with new books to go and buy. You know, for example, you mentioned Kate Hartfield's The Embroidered Book. We somehow overlooked that she had a new book out just recently, The Valkyrie. Yes, which I've not seen, but. Uh, but but, you know, but th- this is an example of finding a book that makes you want to follow that writer and, uh, uh, and, and and see what they do next. And and that's that's a different thing from trying to label a kind of fiction. Um, yeah, it's true. Anyway, we could ramble on. We Let could us go on and on with this. But draw this to a close. We we are here on well for me the first day of October, which is difficult to process, and I think for you probably the last day of September. Uh, September has about two and a half more hours to go for me here. And so we're moving towards the World Fantasy Convention. I think we'll probably get one more episode out before then if we're lucky. And then it'll be Kansas, Kansas, Kansas. And we'll, we'll be there for the World Fantasy Awards, which will be presented to all the nice people who are nominated for them. 
And we hope some of our listeners will show up and say hi to us. Yes, please do. Please, please. You know, book your passage. Do not be discouraged. Go to Kansas City. Come and greet us. Throw barbecue at people. People like when you throw burnt ends at them. Or just show up at the bar. We're probably there. This is true. As it has always been, sooner or later, we end up in the bar. And until we see you in the bar, this has been the Coot Street Podcast. With a sleeping cat. With a sleeping cat. She's completely out now. <laughs>